So we're continuing today in the book of Acts, and for the next few weeks we'll do the same thing, and Ryan began this for us last week. Um, Broadly speaking, we want to, as we're in Acts, think about the, the topic of outreach, which alongside of reconciliation and justice is one of our three areas of focus as a community. By outreach, we mean sharing and bearing witness to Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord of life and power, who offers through his risen life forgiveness and renewal to everyone who would turn to him. So Acts is the book that narrates, it's the second volume of Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, that narrates for us the initial story of Christian outreach and witness. So it's a great place for us to turn to learn about this topic together. And it it details the spread of the good news and the growth of the church through the bold, spirit-empowered ministry of the apostles, all of which takes place in the context of hardship, opposition, and suffering. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're taking this text that is probably the most well-known text and story from this entire book of of Saul's conversion. Saul is on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus. It's about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. Six or seven day journey. Nearing the end of that journey, he encounters the risen Jesus on the road and is transformed from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel. It's an amazing story that features the transforming power of God's saving grace, a power that undergirds all Christian outreach. It has three basic parts. Verses 1 and 2, they detail what, were, what Saul's trip was, what it was for, and why he was going to Damascus. Then in verses 3 through 9, we're told about Saul's blinding encounter with Jesus. Then in verses 10 through 19, we're introduced to Ananias, whom God uses to go and heal Saul's blindness and to bring him to baptism and into the life of the church. So that's the basic outline. We're going to make three observations about God's saving grace in this story. So first, the the reach of God's saving grace knows no limits. We're actually introduced to Saul a little bit earlier than this section. Back in chapter 7, so if you've got your Bible, look back to verse 58 of chapter 7. They were stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And Luke writes, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So he was there, and a, witness, a witness, in some ways even an accomplice to this work. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, just a few verses later, it says, And Saul approved of his, of his that is Stephen's, execution. And if you continue, we read more about Saul in verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then our passage begins in in chapter 9. So after an account of some conversions in Samaria and, and an interesting thing with Simon the magician and then the Ethiopian eunuch being converted by Philip out in the desert, we get chapter 9, verse 1. But, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
The point that we want to notice here is that Saul in this story is not just an innocent bystander. He's an active, zealous participant in the violent opposition against the movement within Judaism, a movement that we now, of course, call Christianity, but as we read in verse 2, was then called just the way. He was in in a movement against this this group that centered around uh, the proclamation of this person, Jesus, that had been crucified on a Roman cross not long before. If you were a Christian in Jerusalem or in the surrounding areas, you probably knew who Saul was, and you did not want to meet him. He was actively opposing your work. So when Jesus, in a vision later in the story of his conversion, tells Ananias, this unknown figure in the church in Damascus, to go to the house of Judas and lay hands on him, uh, just a quick aside, Ananias is used in this story into the house of Judas as well. That's where, where Saul went after he encountered Jesus. Up to this point in Acts, we know of two people who essentially betrayed Jesus. They were Judas, and he's replaced in Acts 1, and then Ananias and his wife Sapphira in Acts 5. And it's almost as if the author Luke is saying, look, people will fall away in this work, but God will always replace them. So you have Judas and Ananias. Anyway, that doesn't have a lot to do with what else I'm saying, but it's a worthwhile thing to note about this text. They play a role in this, in this work of converting Saul. So when Jesus tells Ananias in a vision Ananias to go to Saul in the house of Judas, Ananias' resistance is understandable. So look with me at verses 13 and 14. He says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I don't want to go anywhere near this guy, Ananias is saying, because I know his reputation. Surely not this man, Lord. You must have someone else in mind for me to go and visit. And Jesus simply responds to this in verse 15 with go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. And so Ananias goes and finds that Saul has been transformed. If there was one man in those early days of Christian proclamation that seemed to be beyond the reach of God's transforming power and love and life, it would have been Saul. And yet it's Saul that Jesus reaches, grabs him, transforms him, and makes him new. Which means that this, and Saul, whose name later becomes, of course, Paul, makes this point in 1 Timothy, that if God's grace can meet Saul, then God's grace can meet anyone. And among many other things that could be said about this text, I believe this needs to really be seen at the outset of the early Christian witness and outreach, in the midst of opposition and trial and hardship, God is teaching his church that no one, no one is beyond the reach of his saving power and grace. When Paul later writes about this in the letter First Timothy, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, 
as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Jesus found me. Jesus rescued me. Jesus won me over, Paul is saying, to exemplify his great mercy and his perfect patience with anyone who would turn to him for life. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. This has a few implications. Just let me give you two before we turn to our second point in the work of Christian outreach. First, there are no real human enemies. Satan is the enemy. But those who are co-opted by the powers of darkness to oppose the truth, as Saul was, are creatures made in God's image who are not beyond the reach of God's transforming grace and power. I remember in 2010, on January 7th, 2010, there was a shooting outside of a church in southern Egypt. And I have a friend, it's actually a friend of my dad's, who's been a part of ministry in the Middle East for a long time, and I was on his mailing list. And a week or so after that shooting, he sent an email from his friends in Egypt. And at the end of the email, there was a list of things that they asked Christians around the globe to be praying for. And this was the fifth or sixth thing on the list of seven. Pray that all perpetrators of violence will be convicted by the Spirit and seek the forgiveness and new life of the Son. It just, I haven't forgotten, obviously, it profoundly impacted me to think about this group of Christians that had been violently killed and the people that survived, asking for us to pray for the perpetrators of violence. Similar prayers have come out of Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't know who you were, but one of you, two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, the morning that that happened, beautifully prayed in our prayers of the people for the perpetrators of violence against the churches in Sri Lanka. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus and you're exploring this, I think you should find this very peculiar and interesting. But it is a key feature of the Christian mission and witness that we have no real enemies other than the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places who have been defeated decisively by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we find ourselves praying for those people who harm us and damage us and undo us and oppose us because we know we are no different than them. We know that we have no gains over them. We know that we're no holier than them. We're no more worthy than them of the love of God and the grace of God and the life of God that's been poured out into our hearts. And so in obedience to Jesus, who while he was hanging on the cross said about his perpetrators, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen, who just a few few days later when he was martyred, cries out for God to forgive those who are stoning him in the very process. This is part of our DNA. Because God's grace knows no limitations, because it can reach to the deepest, darkest places of the human heart, of every human heart, we are called as the people of God going out in Christian outreach to pray for those who oppose this work. And the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is an example number one that God's grace knows no limits. No one is beyond. So think about that person in your life, right? And this is the second kind of subpoint under here. There's real hope for everyone that you know, that you can conceive of in your mind right now. Whether they're world dictators that seem wicked and evil, or unjust and crooked, or they're people in your life 
that you find oppose the church in the deepest way possible and maybe sometimes oppose you and maybe really frustrate you and make you angry and annoyed. Whoever they are, there is no one in this world that is beyond the reach of God's transforming love and grace. None. And that gives us hope, brothers and sisters, in this work of outreach. So first, there's the reach of God's saving grace. Second, out of three, we see something about the method of God's saving grace. Again, much more could be said. I want to say one thing. Look at verse 8 for a moment. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. To see rightly, Saul first had to become blind. What is going on in this story in the physical realm has obvious spiritual parallels. When Jesus ministered on earth, he said to Saul's companions, the Pharisees, in John 9, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The saving grace of God made Paul one who could not see in order that he might truly see. And I would submit to you this is the way God's saving grace works in our lives as well. Why do I say that? At the heart of human sin and rebellion is our attempt to see for ourselves to walk by our own light rather than by the light of God. So, back in the first account of sin entering into the world, in Genesis 3, the serpent says to the woman that God does not want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Your eyes will be opened you'll be able to really see and walk according to your own light. And ever since that moment in time, in the words of Isaiah 50, verse 11, we have walked by the light of our own fire, by the torches that we have kindled. God's grace works in our lives by revealing our own blindness, or by making us see our blindness. The conversion of a friend of mine was facilitated by this very insight in his own life. He was in college. He had grown up in a secular family, no history with the church or with Jesus. He had encountered Christians at this college campus. He was playing football, and the football coach was a Christian. And one day the football coach quoted to the team the verse out of John 8, Then you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And my friend, who, again, knew nothing at this point, really, about Christianity, simply had the thought, and this was the grace of God working in his own heart, though he didn't know it as such at the time. He said, I have no idea what truth is, and I know I'm not free. God was beginning to show him his own blindness and make him come to a place of, I cannot see. God, help me to see. Another friend of mine who, upon turning 50 realized in that moment and the the reflection that comes around that significant birthday that I haven't reached yet, but I gather it's significant. Um, It is. I got testimony here. Thank you. Um, 
He said when he got to 50, he just realized suddenly for the, like for, in, a, in a very new way, not a Christian, but he realized the bankruptcy of the world as it had been sold to him. I've spent my life trying to earn money for what? I've spent my life trying to be secure for, I've spent my life trying to pursue pleasure for what? That was his response to turning 50. And we sat down together and talked and he said, I want to know more. I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know more about this life of the community and the kingdom that you talk about. And we had been friends for years when he had this moment. The grace of God works by making us blind, by revealing our own blindness so that we can truly see that we can come to walk in the light of God. Where might you be walking by your own light? Paul was running zealously by the light that he thought he had, and God blinded him on the road. And then when Ananias goes and lays hands on him, the scales fall off of his eyes, humbled, dependent, Silence for three days. Paul didn't eat or drink anything. That's a long time. But the scales come off his eyes when this unknown man, we don't hear about Ananias again, lays his hands on Paul, Saul, and he can then see. So not only the reach of the grace beyond any bounds or the method of God's saving grace and making us blind, so that we can see. But thirdly and finally, we see something of the effect of God's grace in this story of Saul's conversion. Again, just to focus in on one particular detail of the story that I find quite interesting, Jesus blinded Saul. So Jesus could have given Saul his sight back through direct divine intervention, but he didn't. Instead, he chooses to use this unknown man in Damascus, Ananias, appearing to him in a vision and telling him to rise and go to Saul. And as we saw, Ananias resists, but Jesus reiterates the command in verse 15 and says, go. So Ananias goes, not because he wanted to, mind you. He didn't want to go meet this man, but because he was called to go. And he becomes the agent of divine healing and empowerment in in Saul's life. And this is what I believe is so significant about this reality. Is God choosing to do this kind of work in Saul's life in this way, through an intermediary, through Ananias? And Jesus will often do his work through intermediaries, like you and me. Gave opportunity for a profound and deeply uncomfortable lesson that the grace of God always leads to reconciliation. To welcome. To love between human beings. Did you see how Ananias, did you notice, look at verse 17. How does Ananias address Saul? This is the man who only four days earlier would have preferred to see Ananias locked up in prison or dead, and any other Christian who is part of the way. How does he address this man when he sees him and lays his hands on him? Verse 17, it's simple. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. That's the language of family, the language of community, the language of love. 
So these two men who just a few days before were enemies because of Saul's opposition to the way, now because of the saving grace of God expressed in Saul's life, become brothers and brothers who now minister together. And one is used in the life of the other to do a great work of healing. Those whom God welcomes, we must welcome. The result of Christian outreach of the grace, the saving grace of God, is always reconciliation. Yes, first with God, but then also with one another in the Christian family. And that grace manifests itself in these new relationships where former enemies become brothers, partners, sharing in the koinonia, the fellowship of the family of God. For Ananias... He had to go face this man, for all he knew was responsible, or for all we know, was perhaps responsible for locking up Ananias' friends in Jerusalem. He might well have had some kind of encounter with Saul before he actually met him personally. But the grace of God changes all that, and it changes the nature of our relationships with one another. And Ananias was obedient to Jesus to go and receive the man that he no doubt resented. And Saul had to demonstrate humility in receiving healing from a man that just a few days earlier he wanted to persecute and to lock up. His life is now bound up with the life of Ananias and bound up with the life of all those other people, men and women and children, who were part of this thing called the way. And Saul had to yield. He was blind and helpless. He had to be ministered to by this community of God's people, by the body of Christ that he had been persecuting. The saving grace of God produces reconciliation. It's perhaps no surprise that as Paul learns this in the earliest days of his conversion, that he goes on to proclaim and fight for the unity of this family that we call the people of God, the church. He urges us in Ephesians 4 to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace And he believes that the unity of this church, the reconciled family of Jew plus Gentile under one Lord Jesus, would be one of the greatest signs to the world that God is at work in the gospel of Jesus, in the proclamation of his lordship. He learns that now. We learn that from this early moment, that the grace of God brings about the reconciliation of enemies and makes them brothers. So the reach, something about the method, something about the effect of God's saving grace. I want to close by just saying this work of the grace of God expanding, of the mission of God going out, of the work of outreach that we're called to as the people of God, this work is Jesus' work. Luke begins the book of Acts in a very telling way. He says, in my first book, O Theophilus, I wrote of you of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Which implies that in my second book, the book of Acts, I am writing to you all that Jesus continues to do and teach. Usually through men and women like you and me. Sometimes, in the case of Saul's conversion, through his own direct intervention to blind Saul on the road and see the grace reach someone that no one in the Christian church at that moment would have ever thought of reaching. Jesus goes beyond. In similar ways, in chapter 10, he meets Peter in a dream and a vision and calls Peter to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. To cross boundaries again. Jesus shows up very dramatically when he wants the boundaries to be expanded. And yet he calls us to be a part of that ongoing work. 
to be like Ananias, to hear the call, to be agents and instruments in his hand as witnesses to his resurrection power, as extensions of his grace and welcome to any and all who would hear. This is the work of Jesus. Behind all Christian outreach, behind all efforts that we might make in the work of the gospel, there is a God who stands above it all, sovereign and ruling and reigning, worshipped right now in the throne room as we read in Revelation 5, directing this work. And you and I can take hearts in the midst of a city where there is opposition, in the midst of a world where there is opposition, in our participation in the expansion and the outpouring of the saving grace of God that transforms lives. It knows no limits. It helps us to see truly. And it brings about a whole new community of reconciled relationships. Let's pray.